What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Nestor Alexander Hathaway. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping energy really messes with his brain. One is the forest. The other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a Silver Linings Playcast. Oh yeah. Hello everybody, it's your host Jamie Warden. This is the Silver Linings Playcast, our 25th episode. That's right, can't believe we've been around this long. Uh, as far as I know, we are still the only podcast solely devoted to discussing Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book by Matthew Quick. Today we're going to do a deep dive into uh, a philosophical argument I have that Pat Solitano from Silver Linings Playbook, or Pat Peoples from The Silver Linings Playbook, the book, and Tiffany Maxwell are indeed soulmates. I'm going to make a philosophical argument for this. This is not necessarily my personal opinion, uh, but we are going to uh, dive through a lot of different things to get to why I think that. And most of these things are not going to have anything to do with Silver Linings Playbook itself, actually. Um, to, to get started, uh, one, one uh, if anybody has reference to the TV show The Good Place, I've been watching that recently. And yeah, I just uh, I, I, um, had uh, heard... It was, it was very good, and it was about philosophy. Uh, people had told me that if I liked philosophy, I liked it, and I have to say right off the bat, um, it's, it's all right. It's, uh, it's about as much about actual philosophy as the Big Bang Theory is about science. Now, that is not a knock against the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory is sort of like the nickelback of sitcoms. People love to hate it. I'm very ambivalent about it. Um, basically, the sitcom is becoming a dated format, and I, a lot of those things are just not as edgy as the humor that I, I like in TV. Uh, episodic TV is sort of becoming dated, but um, you know what? They're, they're interesting projects. It's like you take a traditional sitcom format and replace regular words like, I don't know, friends or, or the office, replace office terms with science terms. And then you can reuse the same plots. Um, I'm not sure. I haven't watched The Big Bang Theory enough to be talking about it this much and it's like two. So anyway, I was watching the good place and I got to, I think, um, season two and there's this interesting conundrum that, that posed the philosophical question where it got me wondering, uh, would, would you rather spend an eternity in hell or the bad place physically suffering where everything is just absolutely terrible and you're miserable all the time being tortured, but you are there uh, with the knowledge that you are with your soulmate, the, the same place. Or if uh, the characters were allowed to sort of like lie, they could stay in a place that satisfied all of their external wishes and pleasures and desires, but they would know that they were not there with their soulmate. Now, uh, we are going to go several directions with this too, but first off, I, I realized that we just, we always use the term soulmate and I don't know 
where that comes from. Like we sort of, we just pick it up colloquially when we're talking and we hear it in movies, books, and TV shows. But I don't think people actually understand where that term comes from and what it means. So uh, I was actually asking people, I say people, I only asked one person. Uh, I instantly asked G what she thought about it. And um, uh, she gave me, I love her response. It is, I, I think, like very poetic in a literary sense, right? Okay, so um, uh, condensing it down to the thing that I thought was so neat that she said, uh, she loves the idea of soulmates, but does not believe in them in a traditional sense in the existence. Uh, she says, soulmates are not born. They are made through compatibility and effort. And I love that idea. Um, I am a person too that like, I, I love the idea that there is a soulmate, but I am still constantly battling. It's why I do my search through philosophy, um, constantly at odds between the idea of, of free will and determinism and, uh, whether, whether there is fate or whether we have the freedom to make choices and affect our lives. Like who knows that that's a different philosophical question for a different day. Um, to respond to what she said though, I think one, I think that's so neat because so many people just say yes or no to actually sort of come up with your own personal philosophy on it to, uh, shows an ability to sort of think about these things critically, make decisions based on things that you have learned, things that you know, and balance that against things that you want too. The best part about it is the saying, I wish it did exist, which I think is such an interesting philosophy that is very similar, reminiscent of my favorites. I was talking about the existentialists, about Sartre and Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard being one of my favorites, Soren Kierkegaard. And the fact that he's like, the world is madness. There is no logic in it. So find the beauty in that by creating your own. And I sort of think that's what the embodiment of they're not born. They're, they're made through our effort, what we want. And I definitely believe that there's, there's like different levels of compatibility and, you know, our goals of trying to find love is to find those people that we are most compatible with that you have the best chances. It's sort of like, if you're going to build a house, find the best plot of land. That's not going to guarantee that you have the best house in the world, but you're certainly not going to have the best house in the world. If you start with a foundation, that's not going to provide you the things that you need. If you're trying to build a mansion in a swamp, you're already fighting an uphill battle. And you're not going to succeed. You're just going to become frustrated with the results. Um, if you know there, you can build a specific kind of house for the swamp and that can be really cool too, but you just figure out the things that you want and look for what gives you the best opportunity to find those things. Uh, also side note, um, it's sort of ironic that I think we don't believe in soulmates in the traditional sense. And I certainly hope that you are mine if you're listening. <laughs>
I, it's one of those LOL, but for real JK, but seriously though, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Uh, I have, that's a weird digression. Let's get us back on track. So I, but that was the conversation that, that inspired me to be like, well, what was I saying? I asked a question about soulmates and I didn't even put any real thought into what am I asking? Right. I've just, I guess I was sort of thinking in a metaphorical sense, like, uh, using it to mean the person that you could be the most in love with that you were sort of like destined to, but I'm not sure that I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of predestination like that. So I, I looked up, where does the term for soulmate come from? And the first generally accepted use of it is actually from 1822, which is far more recent than I thought it would be. I actually thought that this concept would come from like ancient Greek mythology, Roman times, fairy tales, and it's not. It's actually pretty recent. Um, it is from a letter from 1822, and it was written by the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was um, an English poet and philosopher, literary critic. He's best known for The Rime of the Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan. That's two separate works, not The Ancient Mariner and Kublai Khan. That would be one long rhyme, right? He was the founder of the Romantic Movement, and uh, he was a member of a group known as the Lake Poets, which was a group of English poets who all lived in the Lake District of England in the first half of the 19th century. And as and the notable thing about them as a group, they followed no single school of thought or literary practice. And uh, two of the other best known members were William Wordsworth and Robert Southey. And apparently there was more too, but, uh, and Sammy Taylor Cole was sort of known as the founder of the romantic movement, but they were all instrumental in that, which I think is, uh, you know, that, that makes them a great authority on what this is. So it came from a letter. This is a very quick quote to be happy in married life. You must have a soulmate. Now what he was referring to in what I've read about this letter was he was basically saying that to truly be happy with someone you're married to, you need to connect with them on more than just a physical level uh, and social level. That's an interesting thing about the time too, because this is a, an 1822 letter in England. So people were still married for uh, political and social reasons as much as actually having any personal connection. And so I think this was one of the first appeals, I guess, in 1822. See, not that long ago where somebody was saying, maybe when you get married, you should actually marry somebody that makes you happy too, as well as just political convenience or business deal. I don't know. Crazy idea, right? The funny thing is that that seems like such a crazy idea now, um, but that's what he was really referencing. And so his actual reference to soulmate, I think, holds a lot less weight than what we now have sort of idiomatically associated with the idea of soulmates. Cause when we say soulmates or use it in, in the context of relationships, movies, books, and art, I think we're talking about this really big, big thing. And he was actually just talking about like, it's gotta be somebody you like too. So that's so funny how that got blown up so 
hugely. And I think there's some other really interesting terms that I looked up, all again, all related to love and relationships that I think we've really uh, misused from their original sense. Now, the great thing about the, or the, the thing about the English language is it's an evolving thing. So when a generation of people and then another generation of people, when they use a term and then the term starts to change meaning, according to, um, uh, I don't, I don't know what you even call it, but like the science of words and vocabulary, according to the dictionary and stuff, meanings do change, right? The authors of the, the different dictionaries always say they, they're constantly updating their words every year because they say when people's association with what a word means changes, that word changes its meaning. So even though there was a historical precedence for something meaning something, it can mean something different when we use it this way. This is very important in law and, and philosophy. That's often why people are saying you have to read the original context, historical context with different documents. It's like when people argue about the second amendment a lot. Yes, we know what the words mean and that, and we can interpret them, but words literally change over history. And so you have to understand what their intent was versus how that would translate given our new understanding of what those same words might mean. So I, I had all that come up thinking about the good place and one, I, I don't want to get too far into this, but, uh, I, I enjoy the good place. I think it's a, a funny show. It's sort of engaging. Like it's, I've burned through a lot of the other things that I really wanted to watch and that I super liked. And so it's sort of something, a pleasant thing to watch now. Um, I don't, I don't love, I'm going to be really pretentious about something right now. And it's stupid because I know that there's really smart people, probably smarter people than me that, that studied and wrote all the philosophy on this. I even did research into some of the people. They have some incredible scholars that consulted on the show to make sure they got it all right. But if, if anybody follows or is a fan of philosophy, I'm, I'm a fan of philosophy in the way I'm a fan of Star Wars. Don't understand a thing about it, but I enjoy watching the first three movies and the second to last and last one. Maybe, and actually I haven't seen the other ones, but the, <laughs> I... I may or may not like them. I don't know. You can't know until, until you know, right? But anyway, so I, I have a major problem with the philosophy of the good place. Now, with, with a lot of philosophy, it's, it's often the, the teaching model is to go historically because as you move through periods of thought, uh, philosophers built on the ideas presented by the previous generation of philosophers, and that makes sense. It's hard to jump right into, like, if you tried to read Alfred North Whitehead right now with no background on philosophy, it would be very confusing because there's a lot of concepts that he's just assuming that you were going to understand from uh, dating back to the beginning, like Socrates, who was the founder of Western philosophy. Like, you really have to start there. And sometimes it seems boring to start there but you're not going to understand the context of what the next guys are talking about unless you've really thought out those things. And The Good Place really tries to do that. It really tries to sort of start in chronological order and uh, present to the audience basic concepts of um, ethical 
philosophy and it does that. It, it does a good job because it's also here's the bottom line. It's trying to be entertaining and there's nothing I hate more than critics that always say that you're losing all the technicality of something by trying to make something that's entertaining, entertaining. So I'm being an absolute hypocrite and doing the exact thing I hate, but it was just, it's such a glaring problem to me personally that I have to vent about it into my void right now. And that is the fact that the concept of identity philosophy and self philosophy doesn't really get introduced until I believe it is the second or third episode of the third season. That means there's almost 30 episodes. There's probably, there's like 26 or 28 episodes. That's two and a half years that go by before anybody. And if you don't know the plot of it, uh, basically there's people that ended up dying and they wound up in heaven, but they weren't really supposed to be there. And so once they get find out, found out they're, they're being chased down by the demons that are trying to take them back to the bad place. And they're basically making an ethical argument about over, over the course of the things that they learned from one of the people who's an ethics professor and his uh, life life, who's teaching them all the philosophy. Now, the, the reason I'm bringing up the philosophy of, of identity, philosophy, and self, the philosophy of self, is because these are the, the schools of philosophy that originate where you start to think about, is a person the same person that they've always been through their whole life? I think we've touched on this in previous episodes. There's two main philosophies on this. There's the body philosophy that is, we are who we are because all of our experiences and identities, quirks, and the things that make us us are retained in our body from the moment we are born till we die. So like if I want something from somebody, I will go to that person's body and I know that they are a collection of their experiences and who they are, right? But then there's also this sort of philosophy of memory and existence that, that's a more fluid and in the moment philosophy of who we are as ourselves, that we're a collection of memories. And the I'll, I'll get into this more later, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because this is the philosophy that concerns the idea of if we've changed and grown, are we accountable for being that person that we were when we were worse, but we didn't know? This idea is not introduced until the third season when, when the cast goes before a, a judge who is going to make a, a judgment about whether they have improved their lives enough to go to heaven or hell once they're sort of in limbo and this is judge. And here's the thing, all the arbiters of where souls go seem to have no concept that there's a, any philosophical debate about where they should go. They just all make this blanket estate assumption that you are, uh, whoever you were and you're accountable. The, whether you go to the heaven and hell in this show is based on how many, points you got for being good or not, which is a com complete and 100% um, percent buy in to the idea that you're accountable to your physical body and self the whole time. Now I'm not saying 
that I completely believe in that or the other way, the memory idea. I'm simply saying this seems like an incredibly important concept that becomes instrumental to sort of where the story arc is going over the course of this whole series. And it's not introduced in the third season. It really seems actually like it should be sort of the first season. It's what the show is about. That either means that this show, and now I'm critiquing the, the story philosophy and the story arc and pacing of this show. They should have either hit on that at the very beginning, because that means they went two seasons without even really getting to the crux of what they wanted their show to be about. Or... They just are brushing past it, and I, I just had such a pro, a, a big problem with that. <laughs> oh, it's such a dirty problem. It's the philosophical version of being like, oh, technically that's Star Trek and that's Star Wars. I don't care. Okay, I'm gonna shut my mouth on that because that is not really an important thought at all. So different people write different things. Now, I want to talk about some things that I found. I was saying we use a lot of terms when we talk about love, and we sort of misuse them. I don't know how many people are students of ancient Greek vocabulary out there. I know that I am definitely not. I look up specific things because they apply to things that I'm interested in or that I need to find out. But I, I have taken Latin, which I know uh, is not Greek, is what ancient Rome or stuff would would have been. But uh, you know, there so there's there's seven. Diff- the Greeks are so cool, and like they had more words for different things than we have in English. Sometimes that's why it's really interesting to read things in their original text in whatever language they were produced, because it can give you a different context. Like, I think one of the big examples is people read the Bible a lot of times, and it was translated into English, and Engl- and it was translated from three different languages, from Greek, Latin, or, or uh, Hebrew, I'm sorry, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and even some other ones as a collection of books. And then it gets translated to English, and if anybody has ever watched a movie with subtitles or you know, read something that was translated into another language, you lose a lot of the meanings. What if the Bible was just like a comic book about superheroes? And now we're reading it in English and taking it as gospel of, of like absolute truth. I don't know that much. I'm not a Bible scholar. I just, um, uh, I, I know, studied a little bit about it while I was studying mythology and uh, philosophy because I, I think those three things really play into writing stories really well, understanding the past. So anyway, the, there are seven different words for love in the Greek language. And like when they get translated to English, we translate all seven of these into the word love, even though they have significantly different meanings of themselves. And I think that's so great that we, we need different words more words in English. It's not, not, not like slang words. Uh, I mean, slang words. Anyway, so the, the Greek words are eros, which is a sexual attraction. It's physical love. Uh, there is philia, which is friendship or camaraderie. 
I also think that's weird because it, uh, so many of our words come from Greek and Latin root words, philia. Um, I thought that that was a suffix that meant sexual attraction to something, since so many fetishes ended in philia. But maybe I'm mispronouncing it and I'm thinking about this wrong. Anyway, so you have eros, philia, uh, ludus, which is a playful love. It is like flirting, uh, having a childhood crush. It's very, it's like you, you found a person that's sort of like the closest person to you in a group, but you're not, you're not going to go spend your life with them, but it's like, oh, that's my favorite fellow employee. I think as best as I can understand. Okay. There's, uh, agape, which is selfless empathy for your fellow man. This is like a very big, use of the word love. It's like, I am not going to kill another person because I love people. There is pragma. This is a really, really interesting love. There should be a word for this in English. Um, I I'm, I'm wonder if it is not one of the roots of the word pragmatism, but anyway, the, the word pragma in Greek is referencing a mature love. It is uh, not so focused on the extremes of love, like, don't think of it, uh, like we focus so much on falling in and falling out of love. And pragma is uh, something that has been described as often seen in old couples that have been together for a long time. It is the maturation of love. It's really not focused on a moment of love, but it's focused on, st on the existence and staying in love. And I think that is a beautiful concept and extremely important and nobody focuses on that so much. I think, you know, we, we use the term like, I want to grow old with you or something. And that's, that's what pragma is. It's sort of like the, um, if, if Eros is a moment, then uh, pragma is an event over time. Okay, I don't know how to pronounce this next one. I might not have known how to pronounce the other ones. Philautio, Philautio, Philatia, P-H-I-L-A-U-T-I-A. This is a self-love. And now there's two offshoots of this too. I believe it was Socrates, that it might have been Plato, that uh, acknowledged that this is a love focused for oneself, but it can take two very distinctly different directions. There's sort of a selfish, narcissistic love, like I love myself, I am super confident, and I think that I deserve all the rewards. And then there's a selfless version of this, which is sort of like, I respect myself, and it's what people are talking about. It's like when you're comfortable, when people say you need to learn yourself to love yourself before you can love others or let others love you. They're talking about this. Philautia. Philautia. Uh, I can't pronounce it, maybe because it's the one that I most am missing and need in my life to love myself. And then the final kind word is storge. S-T-O-R-G-E. Storg or something. And this is described as a type of love that is found between like a parent and a child. It's often unilateral. It can be the love of like a protector. There's sort of um, maybe like a nature element, a nature connection or per, um, so it's, it's, it might be a, a love that is founded 
out of a connection where it's sort of a necessity or something. You love something that you created because it's yours. You might love all of art, and that would be a different word for all of art, but maybe you have a special connection to the things you created. Um, that's, that's me trying to interpret it. I might be devaluing that a little. It might only specifically be between a parent and a child, but I think anybody that is a parent probably will understand that um, more than I fully do. I know that they're, they're, that I think that's the kind of love that I would describe between like uh, my soldiers or something. Oh, and this reminds me too. So going back to my idea, my feeling on whether soulmates exist or not. Um, I think, so there's, there's a whole bunch of different things a person needs in their life. And when I use the term soulmate, I think, I think of it as sort of just, it's when you find the best partner that fulfills the most of those things that you could possibly find someone who could, because there's so many people in the world and we're all so different. But I, th I think, you'll find in life that different people offer you different things that you need and different people can provide those things best of all to spend your whole life looking for one person that's going to fulfill every single thing that you need in life is the thing that I think ends up frustrating a lot of people. You, you probably won't find that because people, some people can't provide certain things to you just because of their station in life, their position to you. I have had favorite teachers, uh, mostly the ones that understood that I hated school and helped me basically make it through, even though I should have failed everything. Um, my battle buddies, some of my favorite squad mates when I was in the army or something, they, so they provided me something that like a, a, a lover or a family member couldn't. They, we had a very special connection that will only exist in a certain place in a certain time in a certain situation. And it's not that I didn't want my friends and family with me when I was in Afghanistan, but they were not the people that I needed in that foxhole. It's not a literal foxhole. That's not how we fight anymore. Um, but the, these people provided a certain kind of companionship and camaraderie that, and, and so there was people there that was like my favorite people there. And so I think that's what you need because you might have like your favorite coworkers, your favorite person on a different team or something. Almost everybody who's, who's in love, even if they're madly in love with a specific person romantically still probably has a best friend at least. And that's a very important person to them too. And it's a different person because you might not be physically attracted to your friend or you may, but that person provides you with a different kind of fulfillment in life. And so I think it's important for people when they're looking for their uh, quote unquote soulmate is if, if you find a person and I don't want this to sound too clinical, but like who can check the most boxes of any of those things and also is, has the kindness to like, let you fulfill those other things. It, we're a big puzzle, I think. And so when we refer to soulmate, we're often referring to a specific piece of that puzzle, but that's not going to be a complete picture of you. Right. If you only put two pieces together, that might be your favorite piece in the whole world, but you're not going to be a full puzzle. Then it might be the biggest piece. It might be a collection of most of those pieces, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that that's going to be your, your only person. And, and if you're looking for that, you're probably going to be frustrated. 
But what what do I know? All of this is going to be my very, very basic and superficial knowledge, uh, fan-level knowledge of philosophy. I'm not that smart. But that this, this theme is why I started off with our quote this week, too. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. That is, that is why you should not take anything that I say seriously, because I am idiot. Uh, every time I hear that song, I think of the movie Night at the Roxbury, which I am super embarrassed to say. At the time when it came out, I was young, impressionable. Now I'm old and impressionable. But when that movie came out, that was like my favorite movie of whenever that came out, I was in little school and I thought it was the funniest thing ever. And just an example of my poor, poor judgment. If you don't remember that movie or you're too young, uh, because it's not a classic in any way, it was one of the first, uh, Will Ferrell and Chris Kattan movies based on a Saturday night live sketch. And like I said, just to prove how poor my judgment was, when that movie came out, I thought this Chris Kattan guy is going to be a huge star and we are never going to see this Will Ferrell guy again. He is the worst. So that is why you should not take anything that I'm saying to, to me hold any weight. I am just rambling into my microphone. Okay. So we have those seven different words for love. What I want to get from there is to the term platonic love, because this is what I was actually really referencing when I said this is another term that we misuse, I think. Maybe we're not misusing it now, but we've changed what it means when it really came out. Platonic was a reference to Plato and his version of what love should be, right? Platonic love now is sort of used to mean like, I love you like a friend. I love you like a brother sort of, maybe it's like, I love you with all the romance, but with no physical attraction to you. Right. Uh, definition of it. Platonic love is a reference to Plato's philosophy of how you ascend the ladder of love, getting closer to being focused. Wait, no, that's not the definition. I wrote that in my notes. Okay. So, so Plato who was a student of Socrates, uh, Socrates being the first person that most people study in philosophy. He was the founder of Western philosophy, the first moral philosopher, the teacher of Plato and Xenophon. Fun fact that nobody will care about. Xenophon was an ancient, ancient general, and he wrote a memoir, The Persian Expedition, which is actually one of my favorite books. I'm so boring. <laughs> and I have not read that many books. And I actually read it too. It was not an audiobook. I read the I found a very old copy of the Persian Expedition. It is somewhat of a rare book to find. And it's actually it's really neat. Um it is a uh, military account of this expedition that a whole bunch of the Greeks took into Persia and they invaded like really, really far. And then when they got done, they had to return back. And it's, it's basically, here's the thing. It's like a true version of the Odyssey. I think, I think that's why I find it so neat. And it's written like a diary. It's written like this guy is war journal and he's, he's talking about it. And it's such an old text 
it's so interesting to basically read like what was this Greek general thinking and experiencing on a day-to-day basis and it's so old it's and yet, so it's really cool to see a snapshot of what life actually was like then not told as mythology not told as uh stories with monsters and gods and stuff and so i anyway i that's one of the very few books I've read, along with, if you guys have been listening now, you guys know the rest? Yep, it's basically The Great Gatsby and The Stranger and The Bell Jar and Silver, The Silver Linings Playbook. And there's probably like five other books I've read in my life. That's about it. I've listened to a bunch of audiobooks, but apparently, apparently I'm not counting listening to audiobooks as having read books. So uh, I guess I haven't read as many books as I've thought, Uh, but, uh, let's get back to platonic love. So we, we in the English language often, I think use platonic love. Most people use it. I think when they're disappointed that they're not finding romantic love, right? I think the, the time we've heard it is like, Oh, they love me, but they love me platonically. That's like when you wanted somebody to be in love with you and they sort of, have most of the things where they are, but basically they don't want to have sex with you. Or you can have that the other way around too. It's like, I love you, but I'm not physically attracted to you. And that's generally the way we use it. There might be a better meaning for that. And I might not understand things that clearly, but I think generally that's the way we reference it. When in fact, Plato, when, when they refer to it, um, platonic love actually it, it wasn't a kind of love it was a way to love that increased your level of love plato in one of his speeches suggested that there are seven layer levels of love it's called plato's ladder of love or diatimas diatim Timas, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce all these Greek things. Um, ladder of love, which is a progression of basically like the levels of finding the purest love. And platonic love is what you do to elevate from level one to level two to level. Then there's six levels and they're sort of thought as like, they're all good, but the higher you get, the closer you get to what the Greeks idolized is basically their intellectual, their, their nirvana, if you will. Or these guys, I mean, it's, it's very biased because I'm only talking about the philosophers. I'm sure there was stupid Greeks and there's uh, ones that were interested in other things. But if you've only listened to the philosophers, then you're going to get the sense that the Greek society was really focused on sort of finding this uh, philosophical, um, I don't know, like, like the, their, their in-game, their goal, their, the, their resolution to, and they're really focused on finding ultimate truth. So let's go over Plato's ladder of love. He said the first love is love of a particular body. That's, it's a physical attraction, attraction to uh, a person, a specific body, that really does it for you, right? And, and in a very Eros way, that's the sexual attraction. And that's good. That's where it all starts. 
I, I think a lot of people have often, if, if you listen to people on dating sites and shows or just talk to your friends, uh, when you're younger, you'll hear people a lot say it's like, yes, you have to be physically attractive to get the attention of somebody else. But then when they're looking for an actual relationship, they're looking for something deeper. And that's sort of what this is referencing or, or, or the philosophy where even if you don't know this philosophy, it dates back to ancient, ancient Greek times that basically to start down a path of loving somebody, honestly, the first thing they got to do is catch your eye. The first thing you got to do is want to look at them for more than, than a split second, right? And so that comes with an attraction to a specific body. Now, this one is weird, um, but hey, he's Plato and I'm not, right? He said the second one is a love for all bodies. It is a, a love where um, maybe you know what you like about that specific person, a specific model, and then you, you start to have a bigger appreciation. And the, the cool thing about this is each one of these uh, levels that you move up can make you have sort of a stronger appreciation for the one below it, too, I think, because it's like, oh, uh, well, think about it like this, too. When you're young, the first person you ever have a crush on and you're attracted to, you might not really understand why. You just sort of physically know that psychologically something about the way somebody looks triggers something in you and you feel something for that. When you get older, more mature, have more experiences, you start to understand what it is about that person uh, in the context of what it is out of all people that you like. And when you sort of, you have a love for uh, the idea of bodies. So you can be like, you have great eyes. I love eyes. I'm glad that people have them, right? Yours are specifically beautiful. And that is how uh, the different levels can sort of compound and accentuate each other. So the third one, this is interesting given our topic this week, is you start to have love for souls. And that is the connection on a deeper basis. That is sort of a, uh, a personality connection, a feeling of wanting to move in the same direction as another person, not physically, but in a life sense. Now, the fourth one, this one is very strange too. It is so Greek. It is love. Fourth, the fourth level of the ladder of love is love for laws and institutions. Now, this is not like saying a specific... I love the law. Uh, it's sort of, it's sort of like saying, "Hey, I love the principle of the universe. I can have love for you because love is a thing that happens. It's like an evolution." So this is so this. Can you see as you move up the ladder? It's not just an evolution of these are more things that you need to be worried about. Usually, as you experience more things, you'll have a bigger understanding of what those things mean. It's like, I love these uh, Polish films, the three colors films, um, Blue, Blanc, and Rouge uh, by Krzysztof Kieslowski, right? Uh, the first time I watched them, uh, they're, they're very thick films. They're the first films that everybody at Boston University watches in the film program. And 
you can watch them and be like, those are really good movies. And then you start to understand the different things about them. They're explained to you over the course of a semester. And then you, you understand them and you go back and rewatch them. You're like, Oh, this is some of the most amazing films I have ever seen. The way that they go together just are mind blowing and they're beautiful in ways beyond just the cinematography, which is the thing that's so striking the first time you watch them. So the fifth ladder rung of Plato's ladder is a love for knowledge. And she basically can't understand uh, any, like understand, and that's like what I was just saying, understanding things, understanding why things are, will give you a deeper sense of how to accomplish all of these things that you have been working up to on the ladder of love. And then the sixth rung, the final one is love for love itself. You have to understand. And I think it's important that that is sort of the goal and fortunately is because if you stay with someone forever, you guys will get old and look different. (laughs) And, and if your level of, of attraction to that person was only based on the physicality that will not exist for any of the parties in the same way. So that's why the goal is to move eventually to your idea that you're so grateful that somebody could love you and you love that. So platonic love is actually a super great lesson and I feel like it's a concept if all of that was explained to people, the the term platonic love would not be used in a, oh, sort of, this is a disappointing, not quite what I wanted, but in fact, like a higher level of thing. I'm not sure if the use of platonic love in the sense, now, now Plato very much was referencing that it is not a sexual attraction, because the goal is eventually to elevate yourself to the point when you love for love itself, the others don't matter. He's not saying they don't matter, but it's as you move towards that, you, you move up, uh, whatever you leave in the lower rungs is going to become less important to you. Right? Like if you ever, have you ever seen, uh, two people that are not that attractive, but they're very much in love with one another. They, you, I mean, I don't know this is really mean, but uh, guess what? I'm not on the internet. Or this is not on the, I guess this actually is on the internet. But no, none, nobody is going to listen to this and write a whole blog article about me. And if they do, I would totally love that because bad news is news or negative attention is still attention, whatever it is. So, but he's, he's saying as you move up, um, the, the next level becomes more important to you and the previous level becomes less important to you. And so the platonic love is basically referencing, it's your attempt to move past, uh, being, being only in love on a sexual basis and being, in love with love itself, which actually really sounds super noble and sweet and the most amazing thing ever. Uh, just so everybody knows though, I am not looking for full platonic love yet. I'm not there in my existence, but I 
really still enjoy that first rung of the ladder. It is a lot of fun, and uh, until I get so old that I am just terribly ugly and untouchable, I, I this might condemn me to the bad place. But uh, I'm really, oh, I just I'm saying I like to hang around on that first rung at least. Well, you know we can move up several of the others, but uh, hmm. come on, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> And anyway, um, so yeah, I, the, I love that lesson on the platonic love. And I think if, if people knew that it would give them a really uh, important wealth of knowledge of what to work for and to understand because like when you're little and you're in the whole ludus the playful flirting childhood crush love, you know, when you get your heart broken for the first time, you feel like it is the most important thing ever, but you were probably just, and like not even first ladder level love. It was like pre ladder because you didn't even understand level one. But if you started knowing what you should look for in a better sense, when you were young, people start, start might make, I don't know. Like I said, um, I'm an idiot. I have no idea. All I know is I can read these things. So we're going into all of that uh, because like I was saying, people often talk about philosophy in a chronological sense. So you can understand things and other things, but we've already talked about the philosophy of self a little bit. And that is where I really want to linger on the philosophy of self. I'm very interested and, and I absolutely don't know how to pronounce these names either. It's super foreign. But uh, Ibn Sina, I'm pretty confident about that one. That's the Persian name. He's known to most Westerners as Avicenna. A-V-I-C-E-N-N-A. Or uh, John Cena. No, I'm <laughs> Avicenna, who is uh, from 19... Not 19. Not, not 19. 980 A.D. He was a Persian philosopher, scientist, the father of modern medicine, is best known for uh, some of his works like the Canon of Medicine, which was basically the go-to medical textbook during medieval times, all as recent as 1650, right? He posed a thought experiment. We're going back to the idea of what constitutes who we are. Are we always the same person? Are we who we are in the moment? And does that make us a different person than who we were? Like, really? Because are we in the body or are we a collection of experiences? If we're a collection of experiences, does that mean when asked who we are, we are who we are now? And that does not mean who we were, who we were. So his thought experiment was called the floating man. And he, he posed the question, if you were suspended in the air, and detached from your physical senses, right? So you don't have any physical proof that you exist. It's just your soul floating in the air, but you're still conscious, conscious, right? You would still have an awareness that you exist. And this was supposed to be a, a thought experiment that sort of proved that your soul is the thing independent of your body. This philosophy isn't necessarily meaning to go Beyond, these thought experiments are sort of trying to isolate specific ideas so that you could make a better picture and decision 
on what you want to subscribe to in a bigger philosophical sense. So they're just trying to figure out because there's so many variables in life and they're saying is, you know, people still can't decide that is your soul different from your physical body. Lots of philosophers have been trying to prove yes, it is. And so he was basically asking, you know, if you had no physical senses, but you still had the ability to think, uh, would that, that would prove that your sense of self is not necessarily dependent on a connection to your physical body. Now, the, the, the far more well-known philosopher, Rene Descartes, um, took that a step further when, and, and became far more famous basically saying the same thing. He's the one that got famous for, I think, therefore I am. And he, you know, he stated, I can abstract the supposition of all external things, but not from the supposition of my own conscience, which is the not quite as catchy way for him to say, I think, therefore I am. He was basically saying everything that's physical is so unreliable, right? Like our eyes can be fooled by illusions. We can hear things that don't exist. Things can feel different to us than they actually are or exist. So how can we rely on any of our five senses completely to know what our existence is? Maybe our bodies are a lie. The only thing we can think is that we have the knowledge of the fact that we are and that we think the the fact that we think in proves in and of itself that we are something that can think and that's all i know that's the that and it's crazy because it's such a huge thought and but it's such a basic basic thing too but that was what he was getting at i think therefore i am so season three of episode two, the point that really of, of the good place that really sort of, uh, sent me down this whole wormhole, rabbit hole, rabbit hole, wormhole is a totally different thing, right? Was when they introduced the concept of David Hume, which suggests that the, the, the your identity of self is, it's called the a philosophy, the bundle of self where yourself is created as a composition of multiple factors. And the only consistency is the identity of the collection, meaning we are not the same person we were, but we are our same self, right? There is no same you from birth to death. And I kind of, I kind of like this. I, I, I believe this. Um, so one of the ways that David Hume was describing this was saying that our sense of self is sort of like the identity of a commonwealth. Think of New York City, right? We know New York City as New York City, and it will always be New York City. And yet the buildings and businesses and people that exist there change, the geographical outlines might adjust, and yet it always is the same thing. If you go back to that thought experiment about the ship of Theseus, where if you remove a different plank of the ship and replace it with a different uh, plank, is the ship still the same ship or is it a different ship? Some people believe that the moment you make a change to something, it becomes a totally different thing, even though it might be reminiscent of that thing. But if you think of, of ourselves more as like, we are different people, we're always going to be different people. And yet we can be identified, uh, our, our sense of self can remain the same even though we're a different person because the, the label we give to ourselves is a composite of all those different factors that make us up. Now the philosopher John, John Locke had a, 
theory that we discussed previously. It's called the memory theory. And, and this was sort of based on his revelation that when you wake up, you remember who you were yesterday. And because you belong to that memory of who you were yesterday, that's what makes you, you. We're a constant stream of connected memories. This is really sort of more buying into that whole, we are our experiences, who we are in the moment is connected to who we were in the past. It's, it's a much more conceptual way to sort of try to define the sense of self. It's sort of like saying, Hey, people are trying to define us as a train system and what we, what a train is good for what everybody's focusing on is the train. What they should be focusing on is the stops where the routes. So whatever route you are at, you know, if I'm at stop a, um, you know, that's who I am now, but I'm going to be at stop B later. And that is also who I am. I'm the route. And so many people focus on a train, but a train can be on different routes. There's other trains and stuff. But that's where there's there's a lot of philosophy battles over the body theory versus the memory theory. So where does this apply to Silverlonic's playbook? Pat has memory loss, right? So Pat is Pat Solitano from Silverlining's playbook is not the same character according to some of these theories. According to the memory theory, he's still the same body that he has been from birth to death, but he gets institutionalized. We meet him long after his story really starts and we, we see his past and stuff. Uh, if you subscribe to the memory theories like of, of John Locke or such, uh, Pat is not necessarily, or no, David Hume, Pat is not necessarily the same Pat that was the guy that was being described in the beginning. Uh, I think we're just going to go long on this one because I'm at 58 minutes, but uh, I'm trying to make a specific argument. This will all have uh, a purpose at the end and we're getting kind of close, but we have a little more to discuss. So maybe we can break it up into two episodes, but I'm just going to keep recording right now because uh, we're almost there. So, Pat has this memory loss, right? And uh, he's not who the, the same person who falls in love with Tiffany at the same end. Remember, the whole thing I'm trying to make is a philosophical argument that Pat and Tiffany are, in fact, soulmates, according to philoso- philosophical debate. It's not necessarily my personal opinion. So let's go into one more, more subject on the identity philosophy and that is the, uh, I forgot to write down who came up with this idea, but it's, I think it's like Herbert Duck. That's not his name, but it's somebody, uh, it's, it's look upable has a, a question, a thought experiment about the concept of a lump of clay it says, if you take a lump of clay and you, you just have the raw clay that a, uh, I'm blanking on the word right now. A statue maker would, a sculptor would have. And say, say you just have a block of clay and you, you give an identity to that block of clay. And the, you, 
the sculptor calls it lumpel. And then eventually he takes that clay and sculpts it into a new figure, a statue of Goliath. Is that uh, statue Goliath, which has been given the identity Goliath, the same thing as the block of clay that was Lumpel? Now, like all philosophical conundrums, there's different ways to think about this. One of those is that it contains all the same pieces. Let's say in theory, all the clay was used. It's all the same clay. The clay that once was Lumpel is now Goliath. You could argue that Lumpel and Goliath are the exact same things, just in a different shape. Now, if you're trying to be a literal, I think you're, you can say like, if, are you asking if it's clay? Yes, it's still clay. Yes, it became, it's still clay when it gets changed, but we're talking about uh, the identity as a statue. If it was a block of clay and is formed into the figure of a person, uh, is, is the statue the same thing? I think most people would, would be like, no, I don't know what most people would be like. It's, just, it's the further we get down this, the more sort of variables arise because so here's, here's the next step that adds complexity to this. Uh, he makes Goliath out of Lumpel and then he takes it on tour and eventually Goliath is broken into a billion pieces by somebody that was looking at it or something was Lumpel destroyed and Goliath destroyed was Lumpel destroyed when he became Goliath. If you believe that Lumpel is Goliath, if you believe that uh, there was no actual change in identity when the block of clay became the sculpture, then there really doesn't justify a belief that there's any change when you have a broken sculpture and a full sculpture. You still have all the pieces of clay, right? There was a parable or, or, hmm, a funny short story that's supposed to be a philosophy story, but it also works as like an old version of a joke too, where there was a uh, debtor who um, borrowed some money from someone, but was in a, uh, you know, a lot of debt. And when the person came to collect their debt, that the debtor said, uh, you know, to made a philosophical argument of like uh, a person is the sum of all their pieces, right? So when they don't have all their pieces, they're changed. When I had that money, um, that was who I, I was and I no longer have that money. So I'm literally not the same person as the person that had that money. So this new me is not uh, in debt to you because I'm literally not the same person. Which actually, like, it sounds ridiculous, but it, but if you look at it on a philosophical sense, it makes some of those things that we thought in other situations not as easy to agree with as we might have accepted and assumed. So anyway, the person that had lent him money starts assaulting him and beating the debtor. And when the when when the debtor gets upset and says, "I'm going to press charges," the person that beat him 
says, um, I had somebody that was in debt to me uh, when I was mad and angry, but I finished and I am no longer that person anymore. So I can't be charged with beating you. So there's a lot of things to think there. And I don't, I don't know. This is one of those things where I, I, um, I've studied a lot of philosophy, but this whole, whole delve into identity philosophy is rather new to me. So I have a lot more reading and research to do before I can really figure some of that out. I definitely know I have things that I like. We're probably definitely going to talk about Batman because of this coming up soon, but Let's jump back to the good place really quick. One of the big problems I think about it is it's talking uh, about ethics. It's it's look at philosophy is totally in terms of uh, the character Chidi, and I'm kind of amazed that I actually know the character's name because I've been watching the complete series and not know anybody's name. I think just because they say it so much um, is that he is he is a professor of uh, ethics philosophy specifically. Now, one of the things that I get really interested into is sort of, I always say philosophy. I think a lot of us say philosophy and never really even think about what does that word philosophy mean? And one of the things I had always assumed was it's sort of an attempt to define morality through thought. And if you do some research, morality and ethics, I mean, I, I know they're different, but I never really sort of had a definition of why they're different. And if you look into the difference of them, uh, they, it's it's sort of a really important difference too. Um, morality, and I I don't even know which one the idea of good and evil falls under. I keep trying to read, but I don't understand yet because I'm not that smart. I don't even know that, right? So, but but from what I read, right? So morality is an attempt to do, to always act in a way that uh, makes you most moral, which seems like one of those definitions that's circular where you're basically justifying something with itself, which doesn't make very much sense. In contrast, ethics is sort of trying to define what is right, but... The problem with ethics alone is that it's sort of, uh, one, it's relative, not relative that right and wrong is necessarily relative, but the fact that ethics is based on the supposition that you have to accept certain truths to go off of. Like you have to understand if you're trying to make a rule, a, a rule, about how to be ethical um, in an attempt to be moral and good, you have to define moral and good. And that's where the morality comes in that you have to figure out what. So, so they really help each other in trying to understand things, but there is a distinction between them too. And I really feel like I failed so hard in being able to explain the difference of them. The, so the weird thing is, the thing I understand most is the concept of amorality. <laughs> this concept came far easier to me. Uh, amorality, or being amoral, uh, is 
is not necessarily bad in and of itself either. It's simply by definition, uh, actions being not concerned about not being concerned about whether actions are good or evil. They are just neutral in motivation. And this can be like hedonism where you're just trying to fulfill, uh, the, the pleasures and satiate, uh, desires, utilitarianism, which can be an altruistic endeavor where you're trying to do the most good, but you can do it without defining what is the most good. You can, you know, you can be given a lot of money and you just feel obligated to distribute it to the most people you want because you feel like that's the highest sense of right, but it's not necessarily based on anything either. And neither of these things are necessarily wrong either. They're just very much simpler concepts to think about that don't require trying to figure out what is good or not. It's, it's actions based on other things. An easier, simpler way for me to start to understand the difference between morality and ethics right now, even though I don't fully, uh, ethics are what laws are based on and morality is sort of like right and wrong. So it's sort of like having that conversation about, should you disobey a law if the law is immoral? Disobeying the law would be unethical. Following the law would be ethical. If the law is good, following the law would be moral. But if the law is bad, not following the law would be moral. But it would be unethical. So you can see why they're both important and you want, and, and philosophers are really trying to find uh, ways to be moral and ethical. But until, but those things are not the same thing. And so that's where a lot of these questions about how to do both of those things come up. So some of the examples of, of things. So when we're, we're raising the question of things that are immoral or unethical or vice versa, uh, let's look back at silver linings playbook, right? So, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, it starts off with Pat and uh, let's go over the actual timeline, not the timeline of the narrative of the story, but Pat uh, finds his wife, Nikki, cheating on him with another uh, teacher from the school. Pat assaults that person, winds up in the insane asylum for a while, gets out, and then he is looking to get back with his wife, Nikki. He meets Tiffany Maxwell and eventually through a series of events, they fall in love. And now I'm about to tell you why Pat and Tiffany are soulmates. Given all the things we learned today, right? Uh, there's not a, there's a correlation between morality and ethics, but they can in fact be different things. So let's look at some examples. Nikki cheats on Pat. Now, people may seem, I'm not making moral judgments on these things, but I'm just saying, given what I think society would generally think, uh, people might see that as an immoral act. It is not an unethical act because it is not uh, breaking the law. Um, that is definitely... We, uh, a circumstantial thing. There's different things like in the military, uh, 
cheating, adultery is actually a legal offense that is punishable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Um, but let's just say in a philosophical sense now, basically it is not the right thing to do, but there's no restrictions stopping her from doing that, right? Uh, conversely, Pat assaults the, uh, the mistress, mistress, uh, the man she's sleeping with. Now that is a thing that people might see as moral because, um, in, in a, uh, is, you know, in like a personal journey sense is Pat doing a bad thing. Let's take the concept of is assault good or bad out of the picture. He is at least motivated by something that might be seen as a slightly, well, here's the thing. No, we're removing our, our moral judgment on the situation, right? So, uh, what he's doing may be a moral action, but it is an unethical action because there's different things you could do. He could divorce her. He could never talk to her again. Uh, he could, you know, there's, there's other courses of action. Assault is not an ethical, uh, thing to do. You're breaking the law. It's literally illegal to assault someone. So let's skip to after he gets committed, he gets out. Now Pat is trying to get back with Nikki. Nikki is not the person he fell in love with. You never hear in the stories, uh, about, cause you never see them together in the movie or the book, but you want to make an assumption that if people fall in, get married, that they were in love at one point and, uh, plenty of people fall out of love, but I, you know, um, I'm sort of a, an optimist in this way, weird way and like to think that, so they started off being in love, but clearly they're not something happened and Nikki is no longer in love with Pat. And this, this is known because she does not contact him in the book. Uh, there, there is no character, Nikki. She's only a figment of his imagination. She appears in the movie briefly, but in the book, like she's not even, she doesn't even acknowledge him. She never appears, uh, for real. So the person that Pat fell in love with literally does not exist. If you're, if you're subscribing to David Hume's belief that when people change who they are, they are in fact different people. Pat is trying to fall in love and win over somebody that does not exist. And that is an amoral thing of him. Uh, that is not like, it's not, I'm not, it's not something you can't not do. Too many people try to get back with people that don't love them anymore. Um, you know, and so it's, 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 uh, a negative moral move in a sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm misusing the word amoral now. It's uh, it's a negative morality move because, um, it's not a progressive thing for him. It's not doing the highest sense of right for who Pat is. He's not loving himself if he's trying to love somebody that doesn't love him. And it's not good for her either. Uh, clearly, you know, if he shows up at her place of work, it just, it makes things dangerous. She has a restraining order on him. He shouldn't be doing it. I understand why he's doing it, but I'm just saying like in a, in the broadest sense, it's, 
Uh, it's not good for his person to do that. So Pat goes through a philosophical journey when he meets Tiffany, right? Uh, and Tiffany and Pat, one of the things that I love about them and one of the things that I think makes their relationship great in the movie, especially I haven't talked about it in a long time, but I'm going to go back to Tiffany's line. She talks early on about, yes, she has her past. She's learned to accept it. It will always be a part of her. She's not that person anymore. She's forgiven herself. And now she's new Tiffany. And she challenges Pat to say, and can you do the same? He can't at that moment. He has a lot of anger and he keeps going to therapy and he has flare-ups and he's bipolar. But by the end of the film, he he takes that journey of self-discovery and he learns to to love in a higher sense. And he had, he, I mean, it's clear he thinks Tiffany is beautiful. He makes reference to the fact that she is hot and that he physically is sexually attracted to her earlier in the movie, but he's not connected on those higher levels. By the end of the movie, though, he re- when they realize the truth of themselves, uh, they're connected on this, not the colloquial sense of a platonic level, but on an actual Plato sense because they're so connected. The, the note that Pat gives uh, to Tiffany at the very end of the movie saying, I loved you. I've loved you since I first saw you. I just didn't know it yet. The fact that he knows it yet, that's the knowledge he's gained about himself, the self-love. He's moved up so many steps on the love ladder. And that's why they have a deeper sense of love than just being physically attracted to each other. And that is why I believe... Pat Solitano, Pat Peoples from the Silver Linings Playbook, and Tiffany Maxwell are, in fact, soulmates. Also, soulmates might not exist, but if they knew, I know who I want to be mine. All right, I don't know if that was a good argument at all. Uh, if, if I ever have to write a thesis on <laughs> Silver Linings Playbook for my college class, the Silver Linings Playbook, um, which doesn't exist then I will do more research and make a more cohesive argument. But anyway, uh, I feel like that was fun because that was actually a little, a little bit of an informative and productive episode. Uh, we are well over our normal time, but I think it was worth it. Uh, we will keep soldiering on. So thank you guys so much for tuning in. I would love to have your thoughts on all the stuff we said. Um, and we and also suggestions about other things that you might have questions about silver linings playbook i still haven't rewatched it anyway okay guys uh i love you so much i will see you down the road and excelsior have a great week everybody